We can end the curse. For Shady Side. What the hell? You see it now. Sarah! The devil has come to feast on our misdeeds. And his darkness grows within each of us. Sarah Fear, you know nothing good comes from those woods after sundown. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I am Mike, and joining me as always, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing, Venom? Greetings and salutations, period peace lovers. Yeah, I'm I'm doing pretty good, Mike. How are you doing? I am doing well. Um, The Fear Street trilogy is officially in the rearview mirror. That's not a knock on it or praise for it necessarily. Just saying, hey, three movies and three weeks for three episodes of Fresh Cuts. That's, I think that's the most we've dedicated to one, um, one oh, single kind of entity, right? I mean, I don't think we've ever had any kind of uh, movie event like this. Obviously, with like it, chapter one and two, maybe knowing that a chapter two was coming right away, but nothing consecutively like this now Mm -hmm. because even with the hulu into the darks we don't do every single one so we can't even really say that we've done as many of those as we could have yeah and even with those it's like they're under the the same banner but they're still completely their own Mm -hmm. stories and characters and yeah i mean i know at the beginning well going into the the episode on the first one we weren't 100 percent sure if we were gonna end up doing it like this but i think as as time went and it just made sense like well if we're going to cover them at all why not just cover them when they come out it makes sense well i mean this you know uh netflix is calling these a a summer horror movie event and it it started to really feel like an actual event once uh part two came out like when the first one came out it was this little project that netflix was doing that people weren't 100 percent sure on they knew it was based on a young adult literary series but obviously you know movies based on that kind of literature haven't you know predominantly been great films over the years so obviously there was a lot of talk um you know a lot of questioning and expectations about the franchise but once the second one came out I I was seeing non-horror outlets reviewing these movies. And, you know, obviously when they came out, they were always like the number one movie of the week. Uh, You you know, Netflix has their little top 10 there when you log in. So, um, you know, even even if we're not big fans of this, it's a big enough event that it deserves three episodes of Fresh Cuts. So I'm okay with it. Cool. All right. Next up, joining us as always as well, it's Don and Ellie. What's up, Don? Hey, what's going on, guys? Yeah. Uh, uh, even though I had a lot of fun with these for the most part, uh, I'm kind of glad to uh, get out of Shady Side and go someplace more pleasant. So. 
Yeah, um, I, as much fun as I've had with these, uh, I'm ready to visit a new town and uh, get some new stories in here. So, uh, yeah, like I said, the, I'm glad yeah. to be here as always and, uh, you know, fun to talk about these. Yeah, and I think that's the other side of it, too. It's it's because when there's so much out there and, you know, we we tend to stick pretty well to the episode a week schedule and it sounds like oh that means there's like tons but if you think about it there you know, there's what 52 weeks in a year and you know there's so many new releases coming out all the time that once you dedicate yourself even though they are three movies it's still like you're dedicating yourself to the same property and, and then it's like okay now other stuff's building up yeah. and if you're also watching other stuff which i'm sure we all are it's like damn there's other stuff i want to talk about too but for close close to almost a month it's like fear street so yeah but anyways if you couldn't guess by now and i don't know how you possibly could not have <laughs> we're covering fear street part three 1666 so um synopsis the origin of sarah fryer's curse are finally revealed as history comes full circle on a night that changes the lives of shady siders forever um all right so fear street part three 1666 general thoughts venom you're up what did you think i mean overall this is just like the first two parts this is overall a fun movie it's an imperfect film i have more issues with this film than any of the three um a lot of it is just um the the been there done that factor of it all as we're watching the first what let's say hour and 20 minutes of this film that actually takes place in 1666 i the whole time it just felt like a, a remake of the crucible um right down to the point where the name of the very first victim of um the 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 curse was named cyrus miller i don't know if anybody caught that but that, i'm sure that's an homage to arthur miller the writer the original uh writer of the screenplay for uh the crucible so um and like i said it's just as i'm watching it i'm just getting more and more frustrated because it's just more of what we've already seen uh, an innocent woman who is disliked by certain important people in a town is uh she has her name you know kind of marked and she's accused of being a witch because she does things that aren't godly oh no a girl kissed another girl uh let's burn her at the stake i mean that that's obviously the proper response right so yeah it's just one of those horror tropes that i'm just kind of sick of in witch movies especially period piece witch movies um, I mean, ultimately, this movie might be set in 1666, but it was still made in 2021 or it released in 2021. So the fact that I still have to deal with these ridiculous um, witch uh, trial, you know, Salem trial accusation type uh, scenarios is just boring to me. And that's ultimately how I ended up finding myself for the first hour and 20 minutes of this movie. I was bored. I was thoroughly bored, not to say that the performances aren't bad, not to say that the score and the cinematography and all the technical aspects weren't there. They were. But like I said, 10 minutes into the film, I feel like I'm watching the remake of The Crucible. I'm waiting for I'm waiting for Winona Ryder to show up any second to start accusing, you know, uh, the goody Proctor of being a witch. And it's just like, ah, I've been here. I've done that. So it wasn't all that entertaining now. 
Once we get to the twist, basically where it diverges from the Crucible and it becomes his own story, that's when I start to get reinvested in the story again. Once we get the reveal of how all of this started, um, who the actual person and family involved who's causing all this, which after watching two of these films, I think it's fairly obvious who's responsible, but I'll still not name names until we get to the spoiler section, but... Like I said, once we got to the last, I would say, 10, 15 minutes of the 1666 segment, I was I, I was into it. I, I like the story of how the guilty party started everything, how they figured out how to do the things that they're doing. Um, the fact that they you know, decided to sacrifice one side of the town, because as we know, Shadyside and Sunnyvale used to be one town known as Union in 1666. We learned that in part two. So, um, But then for me, when the movie really kicks into gear is when we're done with 1666, when we get to the inevitable ending that we all know is coming. Um, I, I won't harp on it too much during the spoiler-free section, but... You know, when we finally get the inevitable ending that we're going to get to the 1666 segment, we go back to 94, and that's where I feel like I'm having more fun again. Um, on top of the fact that my favorite moment from this entire trilogy is in this movie after we get back um, from 1666. I won't get too much into it here, but all I'm going to say is serial killer battle royale. I'm going to leave it at that till we get to the spoiler <laughs> section. But yeah, um, like I said, the last half hour of this movie, I absolutely love. I love the plan, the plot that they put together, how they execute it. Even when things go wrong, they kind of still write the ship at the right times. We get the satisfying ending that we've been waiting for all three of these films. Um, you know, we get a little bit of the sappy ending, of course, because ultimately there's still a love story wrapped in here between Sarah and uh, I forgot her girlfriend's name. <coughs> Excuse me. Wasn't she but, Dina? Um, well, Dina's the main girl. Dina's the dark-skinned girl. I know, but you called her Sarah. Well, she's Sarah Fear in the credits. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so, I mean, even in, even on IMDb, she's Sarah Fear slash Dina. So, I mean. But, yeah, I, I meant the blonde. I, I meant her love interest, too. So, obviously, yeah. with the two uh, girls, you know, having the, the love interest and everything, um, you know, there's still more to be tied up once the all the quote unquote horror has been dealt with. So, yeah, you're going to get a little bit of sap at the end. But ultimately, it's not misplaced at all. It's not over long. They don't overdo it. And ultimately, I walk away from this trilogy fairly satisfied, though I also feel um, and Don and I were speaking about this off air that I think they kind of uh, the filmmakers, I feel, did themselves a little bit of a disservice by making this a three part movie event. I honestly feel and the more I think about it, the stronger I feel about it, that if that this should have been a limited series on Netflix, they could have taken each of these movies that was almost th two hours long each split them up into three episodes of 30 to 40 minutes each, and you could have had a nine-episode limited series, which I think would have gotten everything across, oh, how can I put it, a little bit more effectively. I feel like with these two-hour runtimes and then three movies on back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back weeks, it was a lot of lore. It was a lot of lore, a lot of characters, 
Uh, one thing that really helped with memorizing characters was the fact that we had actors playing multiple roles in 94, 78, and 1666. So, you know, that kind of helps out a little bit. But it's still, I still felt, especially with that first part, they jammed so much lore into that first chapter that it just felt like if we would have gotten it in 30 to 40 minute chunks on a weekly basis, even if they would have just dropped the entire series at once, like Netflix tends to do, and lets the viewer consume it at their own pace, I just feel like it would have meant a little bit more to me. Because now that I'm done with these movies, I'm done. I'm, I'm moving on to something else. Whereas... If it was a series, it would have lived with me a little bit longer. Something like The Mandalorian or WandaVision, because we're getting one episode a week, it lives with you longer. It lives in your brain, these different scenarios, cliffhangers, things like that. I think they could have utilized that, especially with the cliffhangers, because there's a lot. As you're watching these movies, you can even see where individual episodes can end. They can almost all end on either a cliffhanger or a revelation. And I think it would have been an awesome, nice, tight nine episode limited series that would have it would have kept Fear Street in the public eye for longer, um, you know, as opposed to just three weeks in the summer. I mean, because ultimately the target audience for this uh, this type of film, they're going to forget about this series by the end of August, maybe even the beginning of August. Honestly, I mean, I remember I didn't have much of a, you know, um, attention span when I was, you know, at that age, high school, college age. So I don't know. I just personally, I feel like it would have been consumed a little bit better and definitely would have been retained more effectively had it been a nine episode limited series. But ultimately, like I said, um, just to try to cut my general thoughts here short, um, I did enjoy all three chapters. I had a good time with all of them. I will say that I have found myself the most bored with this chapter because all the 1666 stuff was been there, done that. Now, obviously, if you're a younger horror viewer, then it's not been there, done that for you. So obviously the target audience for this probably is going to enjoy it way more than I did. But ultimately, still had a good time. I still recommend them. They should still be watched. And despite them being based on, you know, young adult literature, we still get great kills, great gore, um, probably the least of which in the third chapter, because there's not really a whole lot of gore in the 1666 segment. But Ultimately, still a fun, a fun little trilogy that I would recommend for horror fans of any age. <laughs> All right, then. Next up, Don, general thoughts. Uh, yeah, um, I'm probably probably going to piggyback on a lot of uh, what Venom said, um, especially the uh, annotations about the series model rather than the film layout, just because it was something that, that just a peaked to me when I was watching this one. I had no inclination of even suggesting that in, in the first two segments. But it was really just something that popped out to me watching this one. And again, that's something I, you know, I, we can talk about more in the spoiler section. But other than that, um, I do agree with a lot of what he said. The 1666 stuff that we get for the first hour or hour and change in this one is just routine, run-of-the-mill, boring kind of witch hunty stuff nothing original nothing new nothing you you know really special or stand out just you know it runs through all the tropes you know he's mentioned them you know so i don't really need to go through any any of them any further but 
uh, once we get to, you know, the revelations that occur in the final 20 minutes of that and how everything plays out, yes, it picks back up and then that momentum just carries on through to 94, the 94 stuff, which is a ton of fun. But the overall impression I get with this is the fact that the 1666 stuff really wasn't necessary. That could have been a 10 minute flashback, gotten every, you know, not even 10, but maybe, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of a flashback and be done with it. You know, get the main gist of their interactions, their relationships, get it all done, get it over with, move on to the curse and how it all ends. You know, the fact that the 94 stuff that comes back into play is better than the 1666 stuff in the film that actually bears the title of the year it was supposed to have been set in just shows how little of that is just important or impactful in the story. It's just, you know, I... I really don't want to say much more just because I don't want to get into spoilers now at this point in this in the episode. But yeah, I fall in line with a lot of venom on this one. You know, I had a lot of fun with it. It was a lot. It was, you know, three really fun films. This is probably the least, even though if I had to pick a specific moment to enjoy the most. Venom is right on and, you know, his little teaser because I was right there with you. That was one of the most fun segments I had in the entire series. But <laughs> yeah, um, I I don't have much else to add to this. Um, a lot of what Venom said, I echoed. Um, you know, I came to him actually with the idea of suggesting a series, and we were piggybacking piggybacking off of that for the majority of our pre-show conversation. So uh, yeah, uh, I'm right there with him with a lot of what he said. The 1666 stuff is okay, but it's uninteresting and. Uh, unoriginal it picks up in the final 20 minutes of that segment and then the momentum carries into 94 and it feels like a fun ride until the end overall a fun segment just i wish it would have been chopped down into a series instead of a film but overall positive thoughts on all three of them okay so as far as i go i pretty much echo a lot of what was already said i mean i think that the biggest weakness in i guess we'll say the first half i think it's about midway it's like an hour and 15 minutes of the hour and 52 it's like 40 minutes that they spend in 94 at the end okay so yeah i think it's definitely the weakest part of this entry and and i think be because of the reasons already said it up to up to this point, we get the Fear Street kind of establishing, you know, its own kind of lore, its own um, monster or witch or whatever is going on. And obviously, as soon as you knew the title was 1666, like, okay, we're going to get some type of origin or background history behind it. So totally on board with that. But the problem is once they start laying out what's going on, it's just very standard generic stuff we've seen before it gone is what it felt like they were doing previously you know adding their own wrinkle to things kind of making its own unique whatever that's going on antagonist villain whatever um with 1666 at least that era of this or the sec that section of this one it i feel like they undo some of that 
up that what was shown to us up to the point it's it's not totally it's not bad but it's yeah. just generic it, it's kind of like okay is this all there is to uh the lore like okay and if that's the case this could have been done in like a 10 15 minute flashback you could have kind of got that point across if that's all there really was to it at the beginning i think by the end of it some of the connections you made to um, characters introduced previously you had a good idea those were there not a i didn't really find a problem with that i mean it is what it is it's a fear street thing i don't think it's going to be you know mind-bending twists and turns and all that kind of stuff so i was fine with how it ultimately played out um i feel like the way the 1666 section was done it almost felt like it would have been more appropriate for like a the middle part of a trilogy um to get this out of the way and then get right back to um everything else whether it's 78 or 94 you know whatever it's like get get this out of the way way sooner because putting it in the third part it's kind of like coming off 78 at least for me personally you know I'm, i'm hyped i'm ready to go this is like the the home stretch of everything having to do with this trilogy and six you know this 1666 era kind of slows it down and just doesn't give us much um i thought but with that said like you guys have already alluded to once we get the switch then i thought it picked up and i was happy with where it went and we got a cool third act and i like the way it wrapped up um i'll still say because it's not really spoiling anything by saying it 78 is still probably my personal favorite entry in the trilogy but um, I was still satisfied with the way it wrapped up. I, I, I thought for being a Fear Street series or trilogy, whatever, it, it wrapped up about the way I would think it would, you know, for this type of programming. Um, and that's that it just is what it is. It's not a bad thing or, or a good thing. It's just it, it's about how I figured they would wrap something like this up. But overall, yeah, as a trilogy, I would recommend it, I think. It accomplishes what it sets out to do. Um, while I was a bit iffy after the first entry, I think 78 definitely did a... I don't want to say 180, because I wasn't totally no, against no. the mm-hmm. series after the first one. But 78 just kind of like jacked me up with the hype even more. And then this one, by the end, um, had me um, satisfied with you know everything. So... Uh, yeah, I yeah. guess I'll leave it to that for general thoughts because a lot of it would just be repeating what you guys already said. Yeah, I I, I actually got to say, I, I agree with you that I like 78. 78 is probably my favorite. I think most people are just going to gravitate towards the aesthetic that they are more familiar with. Obviously, we're all 80s horror fans, so obviously we're going to kind of gravitate towards 78, whereas somebody like Lacey Lou, Dan Chase, who actually grew up in the 90s, they're going to be, you know, they're, they're going to gravitate more towards the first part. Not really anything wrong with that. It's just a matter of what you like more. But this one, um, and like I said, folks, don't get it twisted. I don't think any of us are saying that the 1666 segment is bad. Well, not at all. What we're saying is that it, we've seen it before. Mike and I specifically have both already reviewed The Crucible on another show. And The Crucible is five times the movie this is. And that's not an insult for 1666. That's praise for The Crucible because it's a, it's a ridiculously amazing movie. Um, so to actually see that. And then, you know, I, I've already said uh, many times that The Witch is my favorite movie of the past decade. 
Uh, so to see elements of the witch in this as well, because right around three quarters of the way through the segment of the through the 1666 segment, it literally goes from the crucible to the witch. It literally takes a left turn and becomes the witch. And it's like, whoa. And but then it becomes something completely different once we get the major reveal. But, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But. Yeah, it, like I said, we're not, at least I'm personally not saying that any part of 1666 is quote-unquote bad. It's just, we are hardcore horror fans on this show. We've been watching movies, you know, 20, 30, 40 years plus. So when we see kind of the same tropes and kind of the same aesthetic that we've already seen in a much better film, it kind of leaves us wanting a little bit more. Like I said, 1666 ended strong. I'm not talking about the 94 segment. I mean, the actual 1666 segment ended strong with the reveal of our villain, you know, and then just the explanation of everything that was done. I thought that part was great. Yeah, and that, of course. I, I mean, uh-huh. I think we've all I, I think we all said the final 20 minutes of that is the best part of the segment. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, think, definitely. Because I mean, yeah, so at least like, it does something different. It's right. not the crucible anymore. Now there's actually a supernatural element. And, you know, now, you know, blah, blah, blah. So. Um, so like I said, once it goes to territory that we haven't seen before, that's when I start enjoying it. Because like I said, I've seen the crucible. I don't need to see it again. I've even seen the play. I really don't need to see another remake of the crucible. So, um, another thing that I was a little disappointed with this movie is that we didn't get a specific iconic killer in this one. Uh, with chapter one, we got the kid in the skeleton costume. I forget his name. Apologies. Uh, And then in part two, we get the Camp Nightwing killer with the awesome hood around his head. And then we get all the secondary bit uh, killers that, you know, the little kid with the bat, Ruby, what's her name? Ruby Lane, the slasher girl. Um, You know, we get some secondary killers, but we don't get a primary 1666 baddie. Like even the guy, the, the first person that's possessed in this whole thing uh, back in 66, uh, 60, we never see him again. Like he's not one of the killers that comes back when all the killers arise from the dead, which, you know, we saw in part two and more than likely we'll see again in part three. So um, that was a little disappointing to me that each movie kind of had their iconic killer. And with this one, we're just kind of left with, you know, Sarah Fear, who, you know, may or may not be the catalyst for all of this. So yeah, um, like I said, there, there are certain elements to this one that leave me kind of feeling like it's the weakest of the three. But then, you know, as we've all said, that final act just rebounds the entire film and really makes uh, a great ending for the entire trilogy, not just this chapter, but for the whole trilogy. It's a great little ending. So um, but yeah, I mean, there's going to be some nitpicks that we're going to come up with here and there. Obviously, as I've already said, we're old horror fans here. We're all old souls. So, yeah, we got a lot to say. I especially am going to have a lot to say once we get to the spoiler dis- uh, discussion. So that's it for me for general thoughts, Mike. I'm sorry. I like to ramble. <laughs> no worries. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a lot to go over because, I mean, even though we've already talked about the other two, there's going to be things that, you know, tie to it, relate to it. That'll probably get brought up. But mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I have to say about it. I mean, we did get a... You can get a slight tease for more. Yeah. During the credits, we can get in. We can talk about that, I guess. In yeah. Spoilers, yeah. but yeah, I think that's all I really had for general thoughts. 
I mean, I feel I feel like the 1666 segment was just there to show us how women were treated. Like it, it felt like it was just a segment to give us uh, for us to feel more sympathy for Sarah Fear and for all the women of shady side, if you will, you know, specifically Dina and her love interest. But um, I don't know. It, it just felt like they made us go through that elongated section specifically for us to build some kind of emotional attachment to these characters. But we've already spent uh, almost four hours with these characters with the first two films. I don't think they really needed to do that. Um, We already know. I mean, hell, just from living through 94 and 78, we already know how poorly women in this country are treated. We don't have to go back to 1666 and see the atrocities that they had to go through, but they make us go through it again. Because like I said, I feel like this director is aiming for a younger audience, so she's going for horror viewers that maybe aren't sick of these tropes yet, or maybe aren't familiar with the whole, you know, um, Witch Trials of Salem. Because I mean, this movie even takes place in... Uh, This movie takes place in 1666, which is less than 30 years before the actual Witch Trials in Salem. So, like I said, it just felt like they were trying to give us a history lesson trying to show us, see, see how bad this country was towards women back then. Uh, and, and then look at the repercussions that kind of ripple throughout time, you know, through 78 into 94. And it's just, I don't know. It kind of felt like it was a little pandering, just a little. And I mean, just a smidge. Like well, I said, it, I don't mean, it was, it was uh-huh. very on the nose with every, you know, either fictional, which, or you know like you said crucible account or just kind of what we've read about the time especially the way the scene plays out in the church when the dude gets up there and accuses and everyone just kind of joins in i mean that's that specific scene just when i was watching it um because i i i had i watched it last night but i kind of threw it on during work just you know just to see if anything kind of caught my eye that i missed the first time and mm. when that scene's happening i'm just like okay like it i guess if you're young you might be like um in i'm not even sure of the term but you might be watching this play out like oh my god the horror but like for anybody else it's like yeah like there's no surprise at what's gonna happen in this scene like we we this is like almost dialogue word for word <laughs> something we've yeah. seen before a hundred times. It's just it's just so old, same scenario. And like I said, it wasn't poorly done. Just no. I didn't feel it was necessary. And with everything we got from the 1666 stuff, I I feel like it it could have been a very and it's almost the point is almost hit home more in the fact that we don't stay in the era the whole movie anyway so i'm just like well you could have abbreviated this even more and just kind of given us the cliff notes of like hey Uh they were accused of this and this is how things got started and and got away from it immediately it's like they didn't want to just call the third chapter 1994 part two Mm -hmm. it's like they wanted to have a third year to throw in there so they can you know kind of flex their time traveling muscles if well you yeah know, to give but... it to well yeah and to give it really the feel of like three different movies with three you know yeah. like because obviously you know the whatever year it's supposed to take place and it's splash on the poster so i think it's like oh we have to differentiate each part as its own thing and 
up to this one, it made sense, and this one, and this one's just like we didn't need all that. Yeah. But my one complaint about the third act in this one, and it's the same complaint that I had about part one with the whole mid '90s aesthetic, is that as soon as we get back to 1994. Bam! Uh, fucking 90s pop music. Right back up there. Uh, what are the, uh, the Offspring song. Keep them separated. Literally, we were, we were literally two minutes ago in 1666, and now I'm listening to The Offspring. And it's like, ah, oh, God, I understand that you're trying to convey a time period, but you got to realize that these songs take people out of movies. You know what I mean? Even though I'm watching a movie set in the 90s, as soon as I hear a Radiohead song or an Offspring song, it it like it jars me. It's like, what the hell? Oh, OK, that's right. You know, it's like there are ways mm-hmm. to convey a time period without slamming me with pop songs. And I'm wondering why they didn't do that with 78. It's like they... And 78, my biggest complaint was that it didn't really feel like 78. It felt like 82. Mm -hmm. Um, And but with that one, they didn't, you know, bombard us with a bunch of 70s pop uh, songs. Yes, there was a few in there. Don't get me wrong. They obviously have to have a a soundtrack. But it just didn't feel like it was slapping me in the face as bad as it was in the 90s. And then, like I said, in this one, as much as I love that third act, God damn it, they squeezed at least five or six more 90s pop songs in there. Yeah, it's like went right back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, oh, God damn it. I forget what the second song was to set me off. The Offspring was the first one. Mind you, I don't hate this music, but you have to realize that when you put a certain song in a score – it has to set a tone. It has to set a feel. If it's actually taking the viewer out of the experience, then it's doing a disservice to your film. And not all the songs uh, from 94, be it from part one or from the third act of, of part three, not all the songs are either bad or they don't fit. But every now and again, there's one that just, bam, comes out of nowhere. It's like, what the hell is this song doing in here? For me, in chapter three, it was the offspring because instantly I like, what the hell? Like it instantly it jarred me into reality. Like, oh, wait, I'm not in shady side. I'm in my living room watching a movie set in 1994, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, maybe for your next if uh, if for whatever reason, the filmmakers ears are reaching, you know, my voice uh, by all means, you know, try not to bombard us with music there's other ways to convey a time period there's a lot of other ways to convey a time period and you know i I, like i said maybe it's just the fact that 90s music doesn't do it for me i know i said it during the part one review i'm very aware of my uh bias so you know but god damn it god damn it you, filmmakers, you have to realize that for every 10 people that love the 90s, there's going to be at least one that doesn't. And that person is not going to enjoy your movie as much because you're bombarding them with Radiohead and The Offspring and The Pixies. That was the other song, The Pixies, Gigantic by The Pixies. When that song played, I'm like, what the fuck is this song doing on this soundtrack? Holy was shit. that even a Pixies version? It kind I, of sounded a little sure different. Well, the Pixies version was from the mid-90s. That's why I assumed it was that one. Oh, I mean, I know Kim Deal sang it. She did the vocals. But right. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I was, like, half paying attention to the song itself. But it, it, sign, it sounded slightly different. But it could have been. I mean, it wouldn't make sense that the original is playing in the 94 segment. Because yeah. I did look it up 
that Pixies song was available in 94. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came off an album that was released in 94. So, like, I mean, it fits. I, I'm not I'm not a big expert on the Pixies by any stretch. It's not really my kind I of I don't thing. either. The only Pixies I know are the Sticks. <laughs> exactly. I know I know the little fairies that float around in, in the forest, but that's about it. Oh, God. Yeah. Fear Street. I love you and I hate you all at the same time. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> All right, let's let's uh, let's give our spoiler warning and get into this. All right. Well, uh, uh, that is your spoiler warning. If you are a new listener and aren't familiar with the routine, we give general thoughts. So uh, now is the time to stop listening or pause, go watch the movie, or if you just don't care, stick around anyway. But uh, yeah, it's spoiler time. So what do you got, Venom? I don't know. I don't even know where to start. Like I said, the movie, you know, like instantly within the first five to ten minutes, I feel like it's the crucible. It's it's literally the first note I wrote down in my notebook. Is this just going to be another version of the crucible? Um, you know. And then I did kind of want to recognize, despite my complaints of 1666, I understand why the filmmakers chose to do it. I do. Um, like, like I said, I feel like it's more of an emotional choice as far as getting us to have a more emotional attachment with our main characters. And ultimately I will say they did a pretty good job with conveying the fear that a lot of people, no pun intended, um, the fear that a lot of these people felt in that time period. Like I couldn't imagine being gay or lesbian in 1666 you know it's basically you basically just can't tell anyone literally anyone you can't tell your own parents you can't tell your siblings you know god forbid you tell the wrong friend and they you know rat you out i mean i mean back then people were like executed for that you know what i mean like i so so to see the scenes of like the two girls running off into the woods by themselves and sneaking a kiss or sneaking you know, a little bit more in one scene, um, you know, I, I thought that really did convey, um, you know, the whole fear and everything else that they're feeling uh, during that time period. So, like I said, um, I didn't not enjoy the 1666 stuff. It was just like I said, it's just a bunch of stuff that we've already seen before. But for whatever it's worth, it was still well done. I still did feel for the for the main characters. Um, you know, I even I, I felt bad for Cyrus Miller, who, you know, like, as I mentioned earlier, was the very first person to be possessed in this whole deal thing. I guess we could talk about the deal. That would probably be the first thing to talk about here. Because um, obviously, you know, we already know, as I've said before, uh, the movie starts out in 1666. So, of course, you know, Sarah Fear or Dina, because of, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Sexist men in the town and obviously, you know, kind of um, harassing men who don't get their way. They will then turn around, accuse someone of being a witch, accuse them of laying with the devil. The description that he gave, how people in 1666 didn't laugh at that is beyond me. The the kid actually said that he witnessed Dina and her love interest go into the woods and have sex with a fire. What was it? A fire red goat or, or something like that? Yeah. And, I don't and, know. I was, uh, I'm, I was I'm laughing. I mean, yeah, the thing exactly. that, I mean, like I said, the thing that makes every single one of this sound like absolute bullshit 
why isn't that reported the very instant you see that? Why are you waiting three or four weeks later to report on something as severe as that? Thank you. That you, know, like, you know that is just a major league bullshit. Yeah. And anyone that had any kind of, you know, any, you know, like any kind of a rational mind would just look at that and poke holes in everything and make them out to look like the biggest idiots on the planet. And this is the town drunk making this accusation, too. Yet still, people are believing it because here's a white male, you know, making accusations towards this woman who... I mean, the real Seraphir is white. Obviously, the actress who plays Dina is has darker skin, so I couldn't imagine. Uh, they even even her brother, who is very black, um, is still her brother in the 1666 segment, which is very odd. I don't know if anybody else found that jarring. That for some reason this they're town they're accepts. supposed to be white. I, I, I guess they're supposed to be. I mean, obviously, uh, Dina is supposed to be Sarah, and Sarah Fear was a white girl because they do show the real Sarah Fear multiple times throughout the movie. But yeah. the fact that her was, brother is still a black to, dude. <laughs> sorry, I was, I was trying to kind of write off any of that that confusion to the fact that at the beginning when she kind of looks in the puddle and sees the reflection it's almost like she's seen the story through the lens of like her own recalling yeah, or something so herself into the story that you know mm-hmm. as someone like i mentioned earlier someone who's listening to a story sometimes the way that they consume that story is they plug themselves in as one of the characters well it's it's kind of yeah. like um in if you remember the twilight zone movie the mm-hmm. section where the racist dude gets thrust into oh, like yeah. different points of history. And mm-hmm. obviously he has like a white guy. He's confused. Cause he's like, uh, I'm white, but, but in the context of the story, they're not seeing him that way. It almost doesn't matter to the viewer. We're just supposed to trust that the, the characters within mm-hmm. the story see him as a certain way. So that's why in this, I kind of relate that where she, she's, she is seeing everyone as the people she knows within the story, but right. to and everyone the of the era, they see how, the, yeah, they see the mm-hmm. characters, how they would see No, them. that's valid. Absolutely valid. And they make that plainly obvious with Sarah. I wish they would have done something like that with the brother. Because like I said, the brother character, it's just very jarring seeing a black man in 1666 America living communally in this, in a, in a very Christian town. Um, be it Baptist or Protestant, whatever the hell religion those people, you know, were following. Um, but it, it it just felt a little jarring to me. And a, a quick shot of maybe him as the actual person that he's portraying might be, maybe might have helped the way they did it with Seraphir and Dina. But yeah, it just every time I saw the brother and people in the town are interacting with him like nothing's happening. It's just like, huh? What? You know, so you're absolutely correct, Mike, that they're that they're not they're not actually black, that they're just kind of plugging themselves into that character as um, uh, what's her face um, is telling them the story as uh, older Lizzie or whatever the hell her name was. I forgot her name already. Um, Sadie Sink's character, I forget, from uh, 78. Anyway, um, you know, that. I understand your point, but it's still a little jarring to see it. That's all, you know, and, you know, and I might be the only one. I might be alone on an island on this one, and that's fine if I am. It's my experience, so what are you going to do? Okay, back to it. Where were we? Um, 
Oh, the reveal, right. Um, so I don't know, how do we get into the reveal? Basically, um, we, we have this character named Solomon, who conveniently, we don't get his last name throughout the entire film. Good choice there, for obvious reasons. Um, and it, it pretty much turns out that this Solomon guy actually is the witch in question. Maybe not a witch, necessarily. I'm not sure if that's the proper terminology, but he did conjure um, and make this deal with Satan um, for the town. So basically, you know, once a generation, I think it was, you know, they, they have to sacrifice one person who will become possessed. You know, we saw it in the first two parts. They go, they kill 11, 12 people, then, then they themselves are killed. And then, of course, you know, Shady Side is once again accused of being a shit town and, you know, the complete antithesis of Sunnyvale, blah, blah, blah. My question is, I mean, like, what what was behind the choice for Solomon to curse half the town? Because in 1666, there was no Sunnyvale or Shady Side. It was all Union. But he just kind of decided that this one part of town uh, is cursed, while then the other part of town is uh, whatever. But back then, there was no poor and rich part of town. You know, there was the pious and the non-pious. So maybe that's where the split was. I'm not sure. But yeah, that was the way like... I took it was the denot was the different religious connotations. Uh, OK, that, that means, was so the, like the, the yeah. deniers are the right. shady siders, right? Deniers, <laughs> the shady side. And then the more religious ones would be Sunnyvale. That was that always makes sense. Yeah. But it. still, the, but the, the but, fact is that Solomon is doing this in the name of Satan. So it's like he's basically saying the town of Sunnyvale is the quote-unquote good, but I'm going to use evil to get us our good fortune. It just it, 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 the the I don't know the the kind of hypocrisy of the whole thing was was pretty. It was cool and weird all at the same time because this guy his last name is Good, so I did kind of like that turn there where they started spray painting good as evil it back in 94 when they come back i thought that was kind of cool um but yeah we find out that solomon is a good so of course his name is solomon good he is the first um in this uh, basically he is the person who started this deal with the devil satan whatever you want to go with um they use multiple names in the movie but you know we all know who they're talking about and um you know, basically every generation, another male from the good family has to do the incantation over again. Um, but yeah, like I said, it was just kind of a weird hypocrisy to, you know, utilize evil to get good for these quote unquote good pious people. I just it, it's like he he abandoned God, but he's using his new evil power to help the people that believe in God. You know what I mean? It's just so yeah. odd, a choice at times. And, I mean, unless it was more just like because he felt the power of Satan was like the easy route to all the good stuff happening where. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's that's something I've always found kind of conflicting in, you know, I, I try to put my any of my own opinions on just religion and all that stuff aside because I've always had an issue with like possession movies where it's just like why do most of these movies always make it seem like the devil and demons are so much more powerful than God because I'm like if if these people were getting possessed and I assume like there's an all-knowing God that is much more powerful I'm like shouldn't the possession 
or any type of exorcism be done in a second if God intervenes. Like, I, <clears throat> so I try to put all that aside just for the sake of the horror movie. And I still enjoy the movies for what they are. It's just that if you really break down like what's happening, and I'm no religious scholar anyway, so maybe like someone who actually knows their stuff could educate me according to like uh, biblical text why it wouldn't work like that. But yeah, I, I've always had like service level kind of like conflicts with that kind of stuff. But oh, absolutely. So yeah. anyway, of course, um, <clears throat> Dina as Sarah Fear in 1666. Um, discovers Solomon's plan. You know, she finds the the witch's mark carved into the earth that we see in both part one and two. Um, we actually see it created in this one. We actually see Solomon kind of speak the incantation. We see the witch's mark kind of appear, you know, carved into the stone. And then we just kind of see, you know, um, him decide to pick his first um, victim, which, as I've already said, was Cyrus Miller. He was the preacher of the town. Interesting, too, that he picked the preacher as his first uh, sacrifice. I, I, I'm sure there's a, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a very good reason for that. But like, you know, um, maybe that maybe that could be part of why, you know, the whole deal with the devil thing, you know, a, a more as a kind of a middle finger to Christianity. So like, uh, let's go either ahead. that or take uh -huh. out the matriarch of the village, basically. Oh, was the he the matriarch of the village? I wasn't sure. I, I, I thought he was. Just, I mean, uh -huh. well, you figure that. Well, you figure that a religious character in that kind of an age would probably be one of, if not the most vocal leaders in the community. Yeah, or if not like, leader, if not leader, the guy that everyone would turn to in crisis. Yeah, he wouldn't be necessarily like the mayor or something, but he would be more like the figure that everybody would turn to for moral guidance or like, you know, you can't do this. That's against God's law. And sure. then that would be something that they would, you know, follow along. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine like more in that in like that time frame, even if he's not necessarily holding like a mayor or whatever terminology you want to use, he would be, a, you know, one of the main town council people that they would turn to. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, in that yeah, time. Usually one, period, of the biggest, one of the biggest goals is, like, is to bring down the church. So if you can bring down the leader and then kind of domino effects from there. And let's talk about that first incident. Um, you know, we saw we saw Solomon call out Cyrus Miller's name. Um, as we've seen in the previous movies, as soon as they finish the incantation and then speak someone's name, that name gets carved into the stone and they become possessed by whoever, and they go on their little killing spree of the moment. In this particular instance, which, of course, is the first killing spree, um, Cyrus Miller does something pretty fucking awful, actually worse than anybody than anything anybody did in 78 or 94. Uh, he basically takes all of the town's children, uh, maybe not all of them, um, but it looks like a majority of them, um, a dozen of them, again, because it seems like the killing spree is always 12 bodies. Um, oh, and that was something I wanted to mention, too. I like the way that they utilize that shot of the dead bodies lined up, covered in sheets. They utilize that in all three movies during all three different time periods. But the way that the camera kind of slowly approached them from behind, 
I, I like that shot. They did that shot in, in all three movies um, at the different time periods, and I liked it all three times. I'm not sure if you guys even noticed that shot, but I love that. In this movie, it was coming out of the church. The camera was coming out of the church, yeah. and then, boom, 12 bodies just lined up on the ground, covered in sheets. Ah, so yeah, I remember, I remember it from 78 more than I do 94, but yeah, seeing it in this one, I kind of caught yeah. on that they did it in all three. I think in 94, it was outside the mall after the uh, cold open killing spree. And That's then, of right. course, 78 yeah. at the camp. Yeah, yeah. 78 at the end. That was the morning yep. after. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Which, obviously, very reminiscent of Friday the 13th movies, because we, you know, we've seen multiple, not just Friday movies, but you know, slashers with sequels. You know, we'll see like the sequel start out with some bodies, you know, either either chalk outlines or covered in sheets. Um, you know, famously Jason getting carried off to the morgue at the beginning of uh, part four, things like that. So, you know, just more homages to things that I like as well. That's all. Um, but I did want to point out those shots because I did appreciate them in all three movies. But anyway, yeah. Uh, here, like I said, in 1666, Cyrus Miller rounds up about a dozen kids. And it looks like he ripped out their eyeballs. Um, when when Solomon first walks into the church after Cyrus has committed his atrocity, uh, he sees a pile of what looks like random flesh uh, on the floor, uh, you know, in the aisle, walk going up to the altar. But then when he bends down, he sees that it's a pile of eyeballs. And, and then we get the reveal of all the kids sitting in the pews, all of them missing their eyes. I thought that was pretty cool. I would have liked to have seen it, of course, because we all know how I feel about child death. But at the same time, I'm okay with the uh, the aftermath, too. What did you guys think of that first killing spree? Not that we saw the killing spree, but at least the first incident, let's say. I liked it. I thought it was a great, you know, it was one of like the first times where something actually was happening in that segment. So it was like one of the first instances that kind of like piqued my interest. It's like, okay, here we go. Now we're finally starting to get somewhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of and, course. And, like, and being us or just the horror fans we are, of course, you were like, oh, imagine if they took it a notch up. But, you know, <laughs> you, you kind of have to stay centered in what uh, oh, yeah. uh, these movies are. So I, I thought for for being a Fear Street movie, it was still a pretty cool thing that yeah, just absolutely. The, what we did see was still pretty good absolutely a pile of eyeballs is still worth it in my book oh and i forgot to mention too that cyrus miller also pulled out his own eyeballs too so he was actually when they opened up the church door he was still alive standing up at the altar almost like he was uh, preaching and he actually was preaching once solomon walks in but yeah we see that he's got a bloody hook in his hand and that he also took out his own eyeballs and Oh, God, that was so great. And then, obviously, he's dispatched as a killer, blah, blah, blah. Another thing that I found interesting about 1666 is how easily people w will defend that person. Like, instantly, everybody's like, oh, well, he's the town pastor. He's always been good. Someone must have corrupted him. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, you know, people don't understand what serial killers are back then, but it's like, it just seems so silly. To, that these people will believe that this guy 
is not guilty of his crimes, even though they're standing right there as he as he and 12 kids are missing their eyeballs. They still will say, oh, he couldn't have done it, you know, uh, on his own accord. It had to be someone else. Yet this girl who kissed another girl in the woods, fuck that hanger. <laughs> the, the fucking hypocrisy of this place is amazing. You've got a guy here that killed 12 children and you're defending them. Oh, my God. I don't know if this is supposed to be a male privilege thing or whatever, if that was supposed to be the commentary they were going for. But, yeah, it was infuriating for me, a minority, watching this. Like, God damn. You know, this girl's going to get hung because she kissed another girl. And this guy just fucking I don't know if I don't know if there's a term for uh, extracting someone's eyeballs. But, you know, this guy just took out 24 eyeballs out of little kids' heads. I, I'll I don't know. With, it, I'll go with fatally blinded. Ooh, I like that. Fatally blinded. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, just like I said, you know, the whole point of the 1666 segment is just to show, you know, at least I feel to show the hypocrisy of, you know, male and female relations back then and just how the classes were treated, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, that first incident was pretty cool. Um, like I said, we get um, Sarah eventually is able to figure out what Solomon has done. Um, she gets proof, maybe not proof, but she sees with her own eyes everything that she needs to see. And she even stabs Solomon at one point. Solomon is a, uh, basically attacks her. Uh, she's able to, to disarm him, grab a knife, stab him in the side. And, and then, of course, horror trope number 17, she drops the knife and runs away. Um, eventually Solomon does end up catching up with her after she finds a secret tunnel that goes back to the church. Uh, she comes out of the floor underneath the altar of the church. She walks out of the church and unfortunately half the town is standing right there staring at her. Obviously she's like public enemy number one. Everybody's looking for her. Solomon comes up from behind and says, I got her. I got the witch. She stabbed me in my own house, but I got her. And of course, you know, everyone's going to believe the white male, you know, the, the good Christian white male of the town. Um, and of course, you know, we get the inevitable ending of Sarah basically admitting guilt to save her loved one, uh, you know, her love interest, who, again, I forgot her name. Very sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, so she admits the guilt. She admits that she's the only one who's been cavorting with the devil, blah, blah, blah. And then she gets hung in a torturous way. I've never seen, I've seen people get hung, you know, with the box where they have to stand on a box and someone will kick the box out from under them. I've seen, you know, where they're, sta where they're on a horse and somebody will slap the horse on the ass and then that'll hang them. But I've never seen someone actually put the rope around someone's neck and then manually pull them up slowly. Because usually... You don't do that because unless someone is a professional executioner, no one really wants to be that guy, the person who actually did it. So usually in towns like that, it would be a town effort to execute someone. There wouldn't be any one person involved unless they had a professional executioner. And back then, professional executioners weren't local. They were traveling men. They went town to town and did executions. So obviously, if the executioner isn't in town, then, uh, you know, the, the town would still have the right to execute whoever they wanted. But 
from from history books that I've read, no one person would ever take the responsibility. You know, one person would blindfold the, the perp. One person would put the rope around their neck. Another person would, you know, kick the box out from under them or whatever. You know what I mean? So it was kind of weird to see the execution this way, where it was just one guy putting the rope around Sarah's neck and then pulling her up over the, the branch and then holding her there while she shuts up, while she suffocates, you know, that was really odd to see. Pro probably not historically accurate, but you know, it, it works for the movie. And then of course that is um, her plan does work. They spare her loved one, uh, you know, her love interest and Sarah unfortunately dies on the cross, right? Or excuse me, on the cross, on the tree, the hanging tree that we've been seeing throughout the, the first two movies. Um, but right before she's hung, she does kind of curse Solomon, basically saying, you know, I will be the end of you. I will remember every, you know, uh, terrible thing you've done. I don't remember her exact words, but it was something along the lines of, I will always be watching you. I will always be with you. And someday I will have my revenge, blah, blah, blah. And that's pretty much how our 1666 segment ends after the hanging. As I said, the love interest, uh, she's allowed to be let go. Um, so I assume she's able to live a long, full life in the 1600s, blah, blah, blah. But the movie at that point goes back to 94. And like I said, this is where the movie really <laughs> kicks into overdrive. Um, the kids, uh, obviously, once Sarah comes out, or excuse me, once Dina comes out of her hallucination, which is the entire 1666 segment, um, as you remember from the first two chapters, if somebody bleeds on one of Sarah Fear's body parts, one of her bones, they get a flashback of what actually happened to her. So this was basically the entire flashback. So we now know the entire story. <clears throat> and now the kids realize the kids plus um, uh, the one survivor from 78. What the hell was her name? Why do I keep forgetting? She had such a... Vicky. It was Ziggy, right? That's what I thought. God damn it. Um, so adult Ziggy, yeah. So basically, um, you know, we've got the kids and adult Ziggy. They all make the realization that it's the good family, that they've been going generation to generation, cursing Shady Side and, you know, creating all of these serial killers uh, for the prosperity of Sunnyvale. And at that moment, um, adult Ziggy realizes... Uh, that at the end of part two, if you all remember, she called Nick Good and told him to come right away because she thought he could help. But obviously, you know, once we get through 1666, we realize all the male goods are in on this, you know. Uh, eventually, there is a little montage where they show us all the male goods throughout time, you know, cursing people, you know, every generation, like I said. So, mm hmm. Oh, so, uh, yeah, so we get that reveal, and now we've got the plan. Uh, basically, adult Ziggy and the kids decide to go to the mall, where this whole thing started, and try to set up some booby traps. Now, um, because Dina has had that long um, flashback as Sarah Fear, uh, if you remember anyone who touches Sarah Fear's blood or sees through Sarah Fear's eyes is the target of the resurrected serial killers. And we get another one of those scenes. But this time, they purposely call the serial killers. Basically, what our kids decide to do is um, Sarah cuts her hand open really nice and deep so that they can get like a nice supply of her blood. And they actually mix her blood with um, black light reflective paint. 
and they put it into super soakers. So basically everybody, um, you know, that's Dina, her brother, uh, adult Ziggy, and then the super or the, the, the janitor from the mall, you know, the black dude who keeps getting arrested by Nick Good. Um, they're all um, at the mall armed with Sarah's blood in super soakers. Uh, they decide to come up with a plan. Uh, at first, they try to trap every serial killer into a different store in the mall because apparently the metal grating, uh, you know, the the slide down uh, metal grate that closes up all the mall shops apparently is sturdy enough that it'll withstand axes and stuff like that. So they basically um, they're able to get most of the resurrected serial killers into an individual store. Unfortunately, though, uh, their plan kind of goes awry. Uh, the plan is to leave trails of Sarah's blood throughout the mall that'll lead the serial killers to their individual traps. Um, as I said, most of them are sprung. Um, Camp Nightwing killer, he's trapped. The guy that looks like Michael Myers that we never really get a backstory on him, he's trapped in a different store. Um, you know, uh, uh, the kid with the skull mask from part one, he's trapped in a different store. Uh, unfortunately, more serial killers start showing up. And at the moment that, like, Ruby Lane, uh, the the slasher, the female slasher, and then the little kid with the bat, who I also forgot his name as well, once they show up, Nick Good also shows up, um, and they spray Nick Good with uh, Sarah Fear's blood from the Super Soakers. And then after that, it's basically just a cat and mouse game. Uh, basically, you've got serial killers chasing Nick Good. You've got serial killers chasing Sarah. Uh, but before we leave the mall, uh, they end up uh, basically adult Ziggy somehow gets blood all over her shirt. Um, it's after they carry. They actually say that we're going to carry Nick Good. They used carry as a verb. I love that. So, yes, they carried him. They basically put Sarah's blood in a bucket, dumped it on him. Unfortunately, some of it got on adult Ziggy's shirt as well. Um, so they start chasing adult Ziggy into the store that they're using as kind of like a base. Uh, they close up the grate. Um, she realizes that the blood is only on her shirt. It's not on her at all, only the shirt. So she takes off the shirt and she throws it outside of the store into the middle of the mall. Suddenly, you start seeing the serial killers start uh, coming out of the woodwork. Like I said, you see the guy who looks like Michael Myers. You see the little kid. You see Ruby Lane. And they literally all meet in the middle of the mall and just start slashing the shit out of each other. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, serial killer battle royale. Oh, my God. My erection was gigantic. Ah, fuck, I fucking <laughs> love that scene. Oh, God. I mean... It, it, it's one of those it's one of those scenes that you can go ahead and enjoy the pure pleasure of it because they're all evil. So anyone who dies, it's just gravy. So it's like, woo, go to it, boys. Kill the shit out of each other. And unfortunately, it doesn't last very long. It's literally like less than a minute. But that, that minute is epic, let me tell you. So um, Basically, what ends up happening is a few of the serial killers end up killing each other, like the Nightwing killer dismembers the Michael Myers guy. Um, the little kid is using his bat on, um, on the, uh, the, the, the 94 kid, the, the skull face kid, blah, 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 blah. It's like I said, big old battle royale. 
Uh, basically, eventually, um, the killers who died, basically the killers who survived the Battle Royale, walk away and make chase towards Nick Good and Dina. Nick Chase, uh, excuse me, Nick Good leaves the mall. Dina follows behind him closely. And then once the serial killers are all done with their Battle Royale, they also make chase as well. So it's kind of like a three-way chase. Um, which pretty much ends up, obviously, in the catacombs that we saw in 1978, uh, where we saw the beating heart of Shadyside, which actually is, as we find out, that is the source of the resurrected serial killers. We actually get a scene where they're kind of materializing out of that pumping heart in the center of that um, catacomb. So that was also a pretty cool scene. Obviously very CG, but still pretty well done. So I'll give them credit for that. And then it's just uh, at that point, it's basically just the confrontation between Nick and uh, Sarah Fear slash Dina. And um, unfortunately, that finale isn't nearly as exciting as the serial killer battle royale, but it's still pretty cool because we basically get Nick who's already been injured, injured. He's already been stabbed a couple of times at this point by, you know, random serial killers, once by Sarah, excuse me, once by Dina, and then once by a couple other of uh, the other serial killers. So he's already punctured up pretty well. They have their little interaction where Dina is speaking, where Sarah Fear is speaking through Dina and basically repeating the curse that she said to the original Solomon Good, um, you know, back in 1666. Uh, you know, she's repeating her curse. As soon as she's done repeating her curse, we see the real Sarah Fear stab Nick Good in the eye with a uh, like a hunting knife type thing, which obviously kills Nick fairly instantly. And at that moment, as soon as Nick dies, we see the real Sarah Fear kind of materialize back into Dina. So I guess, you know, where it's kind of implied that her soul is now at rest. And at the exact moment, by the way, that they stab Nick Good in the eye, all the serial killers just kind of dissipate, almost like uh, Avengers Endgame. They got snapped. They just, oh, shoot, they just kind of turn into dust. Poof out of existence. Poof out of existence. Exactly, yep. And and like I said, obviously after that, we're going to get our sappy ending because obviously our, our, our love interests are back together for the first time since Chapter 1, uh, Dina's love interest is not possessed anymore, um, and she's, you know, back to normal. They obviously, you know, um, have a heart-to-heart -heart where Dina obviously offers to kind of go away and leave her alone, but uh, Dina's girl kind of does the opposite and says, no, 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 you're mine, you're mine for good. They basically have a very public kiss, and our movie ends, and that's the end of our Fear Street trilogy. Ah, <laughs> like I said, the last like 20 to 30 minutes of this are absolutely spectacular. So much fun. You can almost watch it on its own. You want the honest to God truth. Um, if you if you're already emotionally attached to these characters, you could skip the whole 1666 segment. Like I said, it's not bad. I'm not saying that it's a waste of time. What I'm saying is they spend an hour and 20 minutes setting up something that Mike and Don have already said could have been set up in 10 minutes. And like I said, since they don't, I mean, other than the reveal of Solomon Good and the fact that he's actually the culprit that started all this, there, there's not really much more to the 1666 segment other than emotion. Like I said, other than just, 
either getting attached to certain characters, starting to hate certain characters, starting to feel bad for certain characters, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, overall, I still had a lot of fun with this. I'm not sure if this is something that I'll really revisit. Um, maybe uh, because there is rumors now that this director wants to continue this whole thing going. Um, we, I have no idea if she's talking about more movies or if they're finally going to go to like an episodic TV series format. But the point is she has expressed to Netflix her interest in continuing this. Considering how big this event was, I don't see any reason why it won't happen. Like I said, either another movie, another movie event. Maybe maybe this will turn into Netflix summer horror thing where for the next few years we get a, a new Fear Street trilogy every summer. I would not be against that, you know, as long as it's not something that they're not bombarding us with and constantly putting out more chapters. You know, if this turns into an annual event, I would be I'd be OK with that. But I still stand on my original point that this would have been so much better as an episodic TV series, as a nine episode limited series. I still say it would have been head and shoulders better. Um, and just like I said, it would have been part of um kind of the culture and the community longer because now that fear street's done we're all going to move on to something else i'm sure most podcasts are the same they're not going to harp on fear street for too much longer because you know now we've got all, all the movies that were postponed from 2020 are now starting to come out all the great horror flicks so um you know we're, we're going to be getting an abundance of great films over the next three four months basically for the rest of the year so I just don't see Fear Street really remaining on people's memories, at least people outside of the age group intended for this film. Like I said, people our age, people in our 40s and 50s, we're not going to be talking about Fear Street six months from now. Um, and I feel like if this would have been an episodic series, that life, you know, kind of like the water cooler life of this movie would have been a lot longer. So that's all. Minor complaint, really, but... You know, ultimately still a good trilogy that should be watched. Or just make a movie. I don't I don't know if trilogies are necessary every time. Yeah, I mean, it just I depends was, on the story, I guess. Yeah, I was going to make that point, too, that this trilogy really did feel like one movie. Um, you know, obviously the choice of using the same actors in all three chapters kind of makes it feel like it's all one movie. Um, but I, I do understand why they took the time to tell the story that they did. There is a lot to this story. As I've already said, I already feel like they almost give us too much mythology early on, you know, um, whereas if they would have done an episodic series, they could have done one whole episode just about the mythology early, like episode two or three could have been nothing but 1666. You know what I mean? And we could have just gotten on with 78 and 94 just a lot quicker. So, you know, minor gripes, but ultimately a fun franchise. And I'm glad I watched it. You know, I, it's not like I regret the time I spent with it. Um, obviously, I'm going to have some nitpicks. You know, I'm going to wish that it was a little bit more adult in certain scenes, a little bit more gory in certain scenes. But ultimately, for what we got, especially for a director that I don't think has a very long track record right um i've never even heard this no i think name. it was just honeymoon i think uh, honeymoon was her first film and i haven't heard her do anything since okay so that makes sense there you go so um you know i like what the director did for the most part obviously there were some choices that i didn't agree with but 
I am not against this series continuing, um, be it an episodic TV show, uh, a single movie or another movie trilogy event, whatever the case may be. I'm there for Fear Street. Um, you know, I, I, I may not be the highest person on this series. I'm not going to praise it, you know, to the heavens by any stretch, but I, I, I accept it. I enjoy it. And I look forward to more if we get it. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, same here. Um, I probably wouldn't be surprised to see at least two of these on my best of the year list, but that's probably gonna, you know, we're that's gonna be something for January when we get to do the best of yep. the year things. But yeah, um, I'm kind of with you. Uh, I would have rather seen this as a series, just like you said, it would have flowed a little easier. But overall, I don't have too many. Net overall harping complaints other than just the unnecessary 66 segment that just lasted too long. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, like you said, um, I would have, I wouldn't mind either, either thing happening, uh, a new series, a new film, you know, a new film series, even, you know, do like another trilogy every year. That would be fun, but yeah, um, I'll see where, see where, see what happens when it comes out. I forgot to mention, too, one last thing. I did enjoy the instant karma change after Nick Good died. Like, literally, as soon as Nick Good dies, suddenly shit starts going to crap in uh, Sunnyvale, and suddenly Shadyside is having, or excuse me, um, yeah, Shadyside is suddenly having more luck. That was the mayor that died in that scene, right? The guy who got hit by the no, I think that was the neighbor. I knew it was the neighbor, but for some reason, I thought the mayor lived across the street from his brother. I'm I'm probably wrong. Well, no, because the mayor because they do the report that the mayor's being investigated for the connection to the crimes. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. So that was just some random white guy. (laughs) Yeah, that was just a neighbor. Yeah, and Uh, then they do. I I, I just thought it looked like the mayor for some reason. Yeah, Um, but yeah, that makes sense. I did too. But then, but then, yeah, they do because as soon as they walk out, they as soon as they walk out, they see the neighbors, and then the guy gets into his car, drives away, and then gets (laughs) rammed by the truck. And then it cuts to the, yeah, and then it cuts to the the news report where showing the mayor of Sunnyvale being implicated in the crime spree in Shadyside. That makes sense. Okay, yeah, I I must have missed that shot of the newspaper. Or I did see the newspaper, but I didn't see it long enough to read the headline. The newspaper was the news report because it was on TV. Because oh, walk out the door. Because then it cuts back to them and to Dina and the girl at her house. That makes sense. Cool. But yeah, yeah, either way, I do want to point that out that the instant karma change yeah, that was, was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Ah, so good. All right, Mike, yeah. let's wrap the bow on this one. After after three of these, I'm ready to move on. I mean, yeah, I need assuming, some adult horror. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm assuming if they do more, it's going to take a little while. So by the time they actually, you know, film something and had it ready to go, I'd probably be like, okay, I'll check out the new thing. But. Sure. Like mm-hmm. after what three three movies six hour investment I'm like all right I'm ready to uh, move on to oh, yeah. other stuff <laughs> I need a plat I I need a palate cleanser I'm probably gonna watch Martyrs later <laughs> I'm probably gonna watch back into the vein of adult horror you know <laughs> I'm probably gonna watch Vampiros Lesbos oh nice. <laughs> 
<laughs> you better. Oh, I did just get Satanico Pandemonium, though. Ooh, even better. <laughs> what debauchery are you going to watch, Mike? <laughs> Shit. Um, oh, you uh, got I'm probably going to use oh, the rest of watch... for Summer Series stuff. I was oh, gonna say, still on the Summer Series. I was going to say, if he's watching shit, he's probably going to watch some German porn. Scheiße. That shall not be happening. Uh, let's see. Debauchery in the summer series for my year. Well, I I would say Starry Eyes, but that's one of the ones I already watched recently, so I don't need to rewatch that one. But uh, I'm sure I'll find something. There's plenty out there. Well, Oh, and I just, speaking of disgusting, I just split open this peach and it's moldy in the middle. Yum! Thank God I did that before I took a bite of it. Oh, that's like the fruit from uh, Shady Side. <laughs> Remember, it looked <laughs> good on the outside, they bit it and it was all rotten inside. See? Yeah. Obviously yeah. witches. No other explanation. There's nothing worse when, like, the outside of a, of a piece of fruit shows no indication of being bad and then... Ugh. I get that with bananas in California for some reason. It looks good, and then you peel yeah. it, and it's what the hell? Yeah, that's happened to me sometimes with avocados. If they sit too long and you didn't realize it. And... All right, we'll start our uh, food preparation podcast later. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, yeah, that's pretty much the Fear Street 1666 and Trilogy. Um Kind of interested to see what listeners had to say once the episode gets posted because it's it's kind of been a polarizing trilogy. I oh, mean, some people so. love it, some people hate it. Then you got people in the middle like me, so there's all sorts of reaction. Sure. I mean, I think there's plenty of people that after '94 they just wrote it off and said, "I I have no desire to watch the rest of it." And there's okay. yeah, I actually did look up the Netflix numbers, and yeah, uh, the the viewership has progressively gone down with each one. Not by a lot, but it did go down. So it's true. A lot of people aren't finishing the trilogy. Or haven't had time to get to it yet. That's true, too. Yeah, it's not like they got to watch it every damn week like us idiots. Yeah, it could be like, you know, they saw the first one and didn't necessarily not like it, but they don't view the parts two and three as like, oh, I got to watch them when they drop, you know? More than likely, what I feel feel now what's going to happen is they're going to just binge the trilogy as one. They, oh, yeah. saw, they saw part one and they're like, okay, yeah, I feel like this is going to, since they're going to connect with each into each other, I'm going to just end up biting the bullet, binging all three. Yeah, mm. that sounds right. That could be another, that could be another potential yep. factor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess with that said, we'll go ahead and wrap this up by letting everyone know where else they can hear us. So Venom, do you have anything new since last week? Um, just still the main show. No more room in hell. Episode 34. It just dropped at the end of last week, uh, where we looked at Derek's picks, where we, we looked at a, a pair of Bruno Matai zombie films from 2007. And, uh, you all, you'll also, if you listen to that episode, we'll hear a familiar voice. Mr. Doninelli from Fresh mm-hmm. Cuts joins us for that one. And we had a great time talking about some, quote-unquote classic zombie movies (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah check out that episode it's a fun one 
Um, yeah, first time watches for basically all of us except Derek and Don. So, so basically, me and Mike got to experience these uh, gems for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and check out that episode. Uh huh. I was gonna say the mere fact that we weren't on video camera doing commentaries with those watching at the same time is the only real joy I really I missed out on. So. Yeah, I, to see your faces when those, to see your faces as those movies unfolded would have been an absolute delight. Oh yeah, no, I hear you. That would have been a, that would have been good. Oh my god, I, mine would have been R rated. I was just, <laughs> what the fuck is this? What the hell? What the fuck? It's just every five minutes. What the? Oh god. But don't. But for whatever it's worth. We had a great time talking about those movies. So, yeah. So check out episode 34, available now on the Dark Discussions Podcast Network. And unfortunately, that's it for me. All right, Don, what about you? All right. So uh, in addition to uh, my final promotion of the big leagues to uh, discuss the episode that then I mentioned, uh, the only other thing that I have is a uh, guest spot that I did. Um, I think, Mike, you were there, too, although I can't remember you being awake for most of it, <laughs> was was a, a guest spot on Skip to the Loo, where we uh, were joined by Derek and uh, one of Lacey's co-hosts, uh, not co-hosts, uh, contributors on pop horror where we did a commentary on the fog the john carpenter version oh nice yeah it was uh the, the first only time. version that should even be acknowledged to be honest <laughs> yeah yeah it was uh Lacey's first time viewing of the fog so it was a interesting experience i'll just leave it at that uh, i want to be there for some of Lacey's first time experiences with classic horror that's got to be a good time whether she likes it or not, it's got to be a good time. <laughs> oh, it was. It was. It was a lot of fun. Um, like I said, I don't remember Mike being awake for much much of it, but <laughs> yeah, he's not yeah. awake for a lot. Yeah, be aware of that. That'll come out on uh, the cut to the chase feed, which is uh, I don't know when that's going to come out, but it'll be on the uh, cut to the chase feed. So pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Other than that. Um, we're still working out a new episode of Graveyard Shit. Uh, I think we have, I think we have an idea of what we're going to do. I think we're just trying to align schedules. So can't say too much. Uh, we're looking to uh, do a comeback on that one. We're going to. The tentative plan, as far as I know, is going to be a uh, another franchise retrospective. Although we're not going to cover five films this time. Uh, I can't remember. I'd have to look at the chat because I I still haven't watched the movies yet, either. So I don't know what when we're doing it. But yeah, I think we we settled on a uh, trilogy of films rather than a quadrilogy. So uh, I'll probably have more information next time on that. But uh, other than that, that's all for me. Okay, as far as I go, yes, I was on that commentary. Partially, I guess, <laughs> as you would categorize it. Um, but actually, Don bringing up that commentary sparked my memory, no pun intended, um, of the show I recorded with Derek, No More Room in Hell co-host, right before that, the return of celluloid dissections, kind of under a new format. And we talked about the Hong Kong action flick Hard Boiled, one of my all-time favorites, if not my favorite. It's at least top 
three. Uh, yeah, I would say still top three of my favorite action movies of all time. So got to talk about that with him. Fun time. And uh, I think that's it as well, because Burning Spring has been out where I was able to already mention it in past episodes. Um, I should be pretty much done with the brunt of my summer series obligations by the end of this week. So want you know in a, in probably another week or two's time we'll be looking to get the next episode of no more room no more room in hell scheduled as well as another episode of theme warriors it's just it's just it's one of those busy times where it kind of snuck up on three of the four hosts of theme warriors uh summer series related obligations for all of us and it just takes away the amount of movies you have to watch especially for you guys that are on multiple years just the amount of time and resources that go into prepping it's it's hard to even get the regular shows out so that um the prep and recordings for all those sh- are coming to a close soon so then it'll be hopefully back to our regular output on the other shows but other than that that's all i got um uh, thanks everyone for listening to our fear street wrap-up and uh, it looks like the plan as of now is to uh, talk about M. Night's Old that's coming out in the theater. There isn't, there is a chance that, you know, once we see it, maybe it's not horror enough, I guess, to cover. And if that's the case, we will figure something else out. But as of now, that looks like what we're going with for the next episode. Um, yep and I think when it comes to M. Night you know his he has a mixed portfolio but there's enough there that I still I, I still am intrigued every time he comes out with something new because there's always a chance that it could be one of his better ones and his good ones I really really like so it's kind of like he, I'll keep going back no matter how many times I get burned because there's the potential for the good stuff yeah uh, I'm I'm just, I'm exactly like that with you. Um, when I like his films, I really like them, but when they're bad, they're just, ugh, they're just like soul smearingly yeah. garbage. I had actually and, given up on, oh. Well, I was going to say, there's no in between with him. I, I have yet to find a film that I'm kind of indifferent on where I think it's just like average. I, I've yet to find that one film for him. Everything is, I'm le- a true, legitimate, love it or hate it person with his films. I have yet uh, to find no. one that I'm mediocre on. No, I, I totally agree with that. I was going to say, I actually had written off M. Night Shyamalan after uh, The Village. Like, The Village was the final straw for me. Like, when I went to see that movie, I was so upset with what he gave us that absolute ridiculous reveal at the end, which was basically a glorified episode of Tales from the Dark Side. I, I had basically given up on him. I, and I actually, I'm pretty sure I skipped his next couple of movies. I know The Visit was one of them. Um, and then uh, basically I started podcasting and Split came out. And obviously Mike and I decided to cover it on uh, just the movies, I believe it was back then. And I ended up loving it. So Split definitely kind of brought me back into the Shyamalan thing. 
but I'm still not going to hold out a whole lot of hope because then he put out, then he finished the Unbreakable trilogy with Glass, which was kind of okay, kind of lackluster, blah blah blah. It's it's a weird, it's it's the one movie of Shyamalan's that I'm like the most on the fence about. Like at times I like it, at times I don't. So. Um, ultimately the best thing I can say is at least I don't have to pay to watch his movies anymore. So I can go see his damn movies. And if it turns out to be good, it's a plus. If it turns out to be bad, then I just wasted two hours of my day. That's all. (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) Well, with that said, no big twist here. We're going to get out of here. And we will catch everyone in a week's time. So thanks everyone for listening. It's time to exit. Say goodbye to the listeners, everybody. Long live Seraphir and hail Satan. Later. Peace.